0: We are in the middle of a series for Lent called Walking with God, and um, I'd like to start just by taking a moment to unpack that phrase for us. Um, Ever since the Garden of Eden, God's invitation to humanity has been to come and to walk with him. God desires that humans would share their lives deeply with him, to enjoy the pleasure of his company, to enjoy fellowship and relationship with him as a way of life. That's what God has always had in mind for humanity. And it's not because he's lonely or because he needs someone to hang out with. God is fully sufficient within himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. But the reason God invites humans to walk with him and to spend our lives with him is because he's love, and he desires to share his love with us, and because he's good, and he knows that the best thing for us is to live life close to him and according to his ways. But ever since the garden, humans have been tempted to walk away from God, to hide from God instead of to walk alongside him, to distrust And to reject his invitation in search of something better. And so, as the story goes, when Adam and Eve first sinned, basically telling God that we don't believe life with you is the best way to live. And that we would rather assume the knowledge of good and evil for ourselves than trust what you have declared to be good and to be evil. In that moment, when Adam and Eve... First, rejected God's invitation to walk with him. Of course, sin enters the world and everything begins to fall apart. And that story isn't just what happened, but it's the story of what always happens, isn't it? It's the story of each of our lives, that we have this standing invitation from God to come and to walk with him, to enjoy the pleasure of his company to live life close to him and according to his ways. And each of us in one way or another has rejected that invitation and instead chosen to be our own gods. But even though Adam and Eve and every human ever ever since have declined this invitation to walk with God, God hasn't given up on us, has he? He continues to pursue us, to chase after us, to call us back to himself, and ultimately, through the greatest sacrifice, provides a way where we can once again be restored to the life that we were meant to. This is what God has always been after. This is what he's always desired with us. In fact, after the fall, the story as it's told in Genesis chapter 3... The next person who we're told walks with God is a man by the name of Enoch. And we actually don't know much about him, but we are told in Genesis 5 that Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. Okay, so Hebrews 11 tells us a little bit more. Basically, that God looked upon this human, the first human to walk with him since Adam and Eve, and God's so stoked that he says, yes, Enoch, I love it. That's what I'm looking for. Get up here. Get up here. I need you here. That's what he's looking for, a human who will receive the invitation not to live perfectly, but to live in perfect trust in God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And so God longs for people to walk with him, not just to believe in him, not just to agree with him, not just to talk about him, or read about him, but to spend our lives walking in his company. And so, throughout the course of this series, we're asking the question, well, that's a nice idea, but what does that actually look like in real life, in the real world? What would it mean for real people to walk with God? And so each week, we're going through various stories in Scripture of men and women whose lives can teach us something about what it looks like, to walk faithfully with God. And if you know the story of the Bible, then you know that finding the perfect example of somebody who walks with God is really hard, right? Even a lot of the so-called heroes of the Bible, if we look at the kind of the course of their lives, uh, it's usually pretty, pretty disappointing. So it's really hard to find an example of somebody who walks perfectly with God. In fact, there's only one isn't there? And it's the one whose death and resurrection we're going to celebrate in two weeks. It's the one who not only has modeled for us what it looks like to be truly human and to live the life Adam and Eve were called to, and and you and I as well, he not only models it for us, but he actually is the way that we are invited into that life. So Jesus isn't just our example, but he is actually the God we get to walk with. So as we come to the scriptures, we're looking for examples of men and women who can show us something about what it means to walk with God. But we also remember that it's simply by the sheer grace of God that we're even having this conversation. That we are even still invited To come and to share life with our maker and with our redeemer. So this morning we're going to look at a story in the gospel of Luke chapter 2. And we're going to focus in on two different characters. Um, And these are people who show us something about what it means to walk with God. And I will uh, just tee it up by saying this is kind of a Christmassy passage. And that's okay. Okay. That's all I have to say about that. So, the setting in Luke chapter 2 is that Jesus has just been born, and now he's eight days old. And Mary and Joseph, his parents, are bringing him to the temple to present him to the Lord. So, we'll pick up in Luke chapter 2 and verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. I have to pause just for a moment before we get to the rest of the text and just explain something real quick. The law of Moses, kind of the Levitical law, requires Jewish parents... If their child would live to be eight days old, to bring their child to the temple to be named and then also to be consecrated or dedicated to the Lord. And part of that process that Moses required was a sacrifice. And so in Leviticus, the Jews are required to bring, as they dedicate their child, a lamb and either a dove or a pigeon. And then, there's kind of this little footnote in the original text that says, unless the family is too poor to bring a lamb, then they're to just bring either two doves or two pigeons. Now, what are we told that Jesus' parents bring as a sacrifice? A pair of doves or two young pigeons. So what Luke is telling us as his readers is that Jesus was born into a poor family. And that kind of messes with some of our ideas about Jesus, about the King of Kings, about the greatest human who's ever lived. That he was born into poverty. His parents couldn't, they knew who he was. Mary knew that she had just given birth to the Messiah and she is consecrating this son before God in the temple and they can't scrounge up enough money to buy a young lamb. And so they bring these two cheap birds. Jesus was born into poverty. The king of the universe was born in a trailer park on the east side. Jesus was the kind of kid most of us wouldn't want our kids playing with. Does that mess with you a little bit? All right, let's go back to it. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. And so, the scene is at the temple, which is a place that's always bustling with activity. There's, it's always busy, and there's a lot going on, crowds of people. And today, is like really any other day, but in the midst of the crowd, there's this old man by the name of Simeon. And we actually don't know much about him other than what this text tells us. But we know that according to verse 25, he is a man who is righteous and devout. Righteous and devout. He's a man who walks with God. He's a God-focused man and has given his life to knowing God and experiencing all that he can of God. And at some point, however he did, the Holy Spirit has revealed to Simeon that he wasn't going to die until he had laid eyes on the Messiah, the one who God would send to rescue Israel from Rome. So when I was 21, I wrote a bucket list, a lifetime to-do list, 10 things that I wanted to accomplish before I died. Can I share them with you really quick? This was 13 years ago. I wasn't married yet. Didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. But top ten, build my own house. Number two, write a book. Number three, visit the holy land. Number four, get in a fist fight. (laughs) Number five, travel Europe with my wife. Number six, restore a classic car. Number seven, kill something bigger than me. Number eight, record an album. Number nine, plant a church. And number ten, have a pet monkey. So, so far, in the last 13 years, I've done four out of the ten of these. I I planted a church, I recorded an album, I've been to the Holy Land, and I killed something bigger than me, which when I wrote that goal originally, I was kind of imagining an elk or a moose or something, it turned out to be a dairy cow with a broken hip. But that counts. So, (laughs) and fed my family for a long time. So so that was my bucket list that I wrote as a a 21-year-old. Really impressive, I know. Um, I share that with you partly just because you may be able to help me with some of those. I'm not sure, but that's my list. And Luke tells us that Simeon has a bucket list too. But I had ten things on my list. Simeon only has one. There's only one thing Simeon wants to do before he dies. He wants to see Jesus. That's his list. It's all he wants. And the Holy Spirit, in one way or another, had told him, promised to him, that he wouldn't die until he had And so whatever it is that's gone down in Simeon's life up until this point, he has concluded that there is no hope of finding true satisfaction apart from God himself. We don't know whether Simeon's rich or poor, whether he's well-known or unknown. We don't know whether he's successful or struggling. But what we do know is that he knew that nothing other than Jesus could satisfy his heart. There was a thirst in his soul that could not be quenched by money or power or fame or success or anything else. And as a result, Simeon spends his life walking faithfully and closely with God. Trusting in God alone to fulfill the desires of his heart. And what happens when God fulfills his promise to Simeon? We get in on this moment in verse 27 and it's beautiful. I imagine that Simeon is there and his heart is racing and his hands are trembling as he reaches out and receives the Christ child into his arms. This is the moment that he's been waiting for his entire life. The Messiah is here. God has come into the world. And Simeon gets to see Jesus with his own eyes. And what happens in that moment? Simeon's heart erupts with worship, doesn't it? He breaks out in praising God in verses 29 through 32 rejoicing in God's faithfulness, declaring God's glory and love. And he says, my heart is completely satisfied. In verse 29, he says, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. What's he saying? I am ready to die. My heart is full. My life is complete. I have seen Jesus. God, take me now. So what can we learn about walking with God from the story of Simeon? It's this, that Jesus satisfies the hearts of those who worship him alone. Because the truth is that every single one of us was created to worship God alone. But we also have this bent within us to worship other things besides God or attempt to worship them in addition to God. And the truth is that none of those things can truly satisfy our hearts, can they? Many of us who are Christians would say, yes, of course we worship God. I don't worship some false god or some god of other religion. I worship the God of the Bible, the Father of Jesus. We worship God. But most of us are also hedging our bets. We are in part looking to God to name us and to give us identity and meaning and joy, but in addition to him, we're looking to a bunch of other things as well. So let me ask you this question. What's the one thing you believe you could never be truly happy without? Maybe you have it, and you'd give anything to hold on to it. Or maybe you don't have it, and you'd give anything to get it. Career, wealth, freedom, fun, appearance, reputation, power, sex, romance, comfort. Whatever it is, that thing that we believe we can never be happy without... That's the thing that in your heart rivals Jesus as the one who can satisfy your soul. That's the thing that you will be most prone to give your worship to. To trust in and to look to and to pursue wholeheartedly. And the truth is that if we're counting on anyone or anything other than God himself to satisfy our hearts, then we will never know the peace that Simon knows. We will never know the joy that, excuse me, Simeon knows. Because we've all got Jesus on our list somewhere. For Simeon, Jesus is his list. Next, we meet another person in the temple. We'll skip down to verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. That's flattering, isn't it, ladies? That's what you you want people to know about, you. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Okay, so first we meet Simeon, now we meet Hannah, two old people. It's a geriatric Christmas story, and it's a beautiful thing because, again, we don't know much about her, but we know that her husband died when she was young, and now she's very old. And she's been living as a widow ever since. And if you remember, as Ken explained last week, in this culture, to be widowed is to lose everything, right? And so Anna has been left with a life that nobody would choose. And she's lived with this pain and disappointment for years and years. But where does she turn in her pain and disappointment? She doesn't go out looking for another man. She doesn't say, well, now I'm free to go out and live however I want to and enjoy her independence. No, nope. instead, in her pain and disappointment, Anna turns to God. And not just for a moment, but for 84 years. She continues to bring herself in her brokenness and in her pain before God and trust herself to him. She worships God, look what it says, day and night. She never leaves the temple, fasting and praying. Some of us are fasting for 40 days. She's fasting for 84 years. So set on living her life in the company of God, so seeking, single-mindedly, I want God and nothing else, only his presence will do. She gives her entire life to coming into his presence. She never stops seeking him. And years after most people would have given up and become bitter, that day, as Mary and Joseph bring the Christ child into the temple, God shows up and she receives Jesus with joy. And God doesn't fix her life, does he? Doesn't bring her husband back from the dead. Doesn't give her money or wealth or possessions or high social standing. God doesn't change her circumstances. But he gives her something even better. God gives Anna himself in Christ. And her heart is satisfied. And so as we look at the story of Anna, I wonder for those of us whose lives have not gone the way that we would have chosen in one way or another. I wonder how in our pain and disappointment we might also turn to God. Do you think that whatever it is that you've lost could be used by God to cause your heart to desire him more? And do you think that even if God hasn't promised to bring back what you've lost, whatever that is or whoever that is, do you think that his promise to give himself to us could be enough to fulfill the longing of our souls and if that's true then wouldn't any amount of pain and disappointment be worth it Jesus satisfies the hearts of those who worship God alone in the psalm that Ben led us in a few moments ago there's this line that we ended with that says this Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. As Ben explained, the Psalms are a gift from God that teach us how to pray. It's a book of prayers and songs that are designed to shape the words, the very vocabulary that we would use in, in our communication, in our daily walk with God. And so this, along with everything else, is a, a, a psalm or a prayer that we are invited to make the prayer of our life, that God desires for all of us to seek him and to say these things to him. So the psalmist teaches us to ask God to give us an undivided heart. Simeon had an undivided heart. Anna had an undivided heart. And the psalmist is calling all God's people everywhere to make it their prayer that God would give each of us an undivided heart as well. A heart that worships him alone, looks to him and only him to fulfill the longings of our soul. Wouldn't it be cool if one day that would be said of us, that Pete worshiped God with an undivided heart, that Jesus was his whole list. That sounds great, doesn't it? But it also sounds risky. There's this place in First Corinthians where Paul says that if Jesus hasn't truly risen from the dead, then we as followers of Jesus are to be pitied more than all men. Do you remember that? What Paul is saying is that if it turns out that this story isn't true, that the gospel is some kind of grand hoax, then he says for followers of Jesus, our life would be a complete and total waste. Paul's assuming that as Christ followers, we are seeking God so fervently and trusting God so passionately and walking with God so faithfully that if it turns out this story isn't true and Jesus isn't the risen King, then our life is pathetic and pitiful and a complete waste. That's Paul's assumption. And it seems to me that Paul's even saying, that's what we should be going for. To follow Jesus so passionately and to walk with God so faithfully that if it turns out to be a hoax, our life is a joke. I wonder how many of us that's true for. Or are we hedging our bets? Are you actually willing to make this your prayer? God, give me an undivided heart. Cause me to truly love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, with everything I am. Cause my heart to seek and worship and trust in you alone to the point where if you're not true... And if the story's false, then my life will have been a waste. It's crazy talk, isn't it? Especially in the culture that we live in. Like, this goes against everything that's that, that in us and that's happening around us. Think about some of the phrases we hear on a daily basis that remind us not to live this way. Just some of the cliche phrases. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Keep your options open. Diversify your portfolio. Don't get your hopes up. The invitation of the gospel is to do all of that stuff. To reject all that fear, all that anxiety, all that paranoia about what, this doesn't, what if this doesn't work out, and to go all in on following Christ. And all of these kind of phrases and slogans are based on a world where nothing is certain, is it? In fact, at a worldly level, this, that, is, that is good wisdom in terms of investments or life planning or whatever it is. Because everything changes, doesn't it? People change. Circumstances change. The economy could tank at any moment. How can we follow God with an undivided heart in a world like that? Well, the reason that we can have an undivided heart towards God is because he has an undivided heart towards us. In a world where everything changes, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. His character never changes. And therefore, his promises are trustworthy. And what that means is that just at a personal level, I always know where I stand with God. Sometimes I fall into the temptation of thinking that my standing with God is like a sliding scale of approval based on my performance yesterday. And that the way God feels about me today is a direct result of how well I did at being Christian yesterday. And the truth is that the gospel has much better news than that. The truth is that we have been invited not only to follow Jesus as the example of the one human who's walked with God, but to actually be included in Christ. That his righteousness and his devotion, his perfect communion with the Father here on earth and right now as we speak at the right hand of God in heaven, We are in Him. If I'm ever curious about where I stand with God, I stand in Christ in perfect communion with the Father in heaven right now. God's heart is undivided towards us. And if that's true, then I'm putting all my eggs in that basket. I'm putting all my funds into that account. And how do we know How do we know for sure that our standing is secure in Christ? That's a nice idea. And the reason is this: that this baby who comes into the world through Mary and whose parents bring him to the temple that day to consecrate him, this baby was born in a manger but he doesn't stay there, does he? When Simeon takes this baby into his arms, in verse 30, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon may or may not know or understand all that's going to go on in this child becoming the one that would be the salvation of the world. But he knows enough to know that one day, this baby is going to change everything forever. And what we know is that this little eight-day-old infant, every time you hold a little baby like that, you just stand amazed at its little hands, its little feet, little ears. And what we know is that those little hands of Jesus would one day be pierced by nails. That little bald head would one day have a crown of thorns thrust deep into it. And that little baby tummy would one day have a spear forced into it. So why should we give up everything in order to receive Christ? How can we know that he's worth it? Because he has given up everything for us. For the gospel, the story of Jesus isn't just good advice on how we can live a life close to God, it's actually good news. That Jesus has lived the life we were supposed to live, but died the death we were supposed to die. And now we are invited to find life in him and to enjoy the fellowship and company and pleasure and presence of God for all eternity. i close with one... One quote, there's a uh, story about the 300 Spartans and at the very, towards the end of the story there's this showdown between King Xerxes and King Leonidas. And King Xerxes, who's this big intimidating figure, says to Leonidas, imagine what horrible fate awaits my enemies when I would gladly kill any of my own men for victory. He's saying, I would kill any of my people if it meant that I could win. And King Leonidas responds, And I would die for any one of mine. So you can serve anything or anyone you want to with your life, you can worship. Fame, fortune, power, prestige, money, popularity, comfort, sex, pleasure, freedom, fun, family, ministry. Whatever it is, you can serve any of those and worship any of them as your king. And guess what? They will gladly kill you. Your money doesn't care about you. Your success has no problem letting you go power would gladly kill you. But Jesus is the only king who was killed for you. And so as we close, let me ask you this question. Who or what rivals Jesus as the desire of your heart? The band's going to come and lead us in a song. We're going to receive the offering. I invite you to take a moment or two to reflect on this question and then to turn in your pain, in your disappointment, in your conflicted desires for God and other stuff. And would you be willing to let God form in you a heart that says, give me an undivided heart for you? Join me in prayer. Father, we are humbled and in awe that you have come into the world in your Son, that you have poured yourself out into us as in your Spirit, and that though we have rejected you and ignored you and in all different kinds of ways chosen to be our own gods, you have been gracious with us. Your heart is undivided towards us. You love us more than we realize, more than we could ever know. And you've shown us that love in the most amazing way. And so I pray that in this moment that your spirit would be here mediating our prayers and empowering us with the faith to go all in on Jesus the one who has gone all in for us. And I pray that you would use our community, this church, to be a radical and vibrant display of your love. That we would be a people that are so secure in your love that we would be freed up to live lives of love in this city that we would become the kind of people that the world needs most. People who look to you and find you as we seek you with our whole heart. So we trust you and we say yes. Give us an undivided heart. In Jesus' name we pray.